Take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're in week 6 of this series I entitled Settled in Hope. And this morning we're going to continue to dissect this section of Scripture that is really at the very heart and center point and the reason behind the Apostle Paul's writing of this second epistle to this fledgling church in the city of Thessalonica. He wrote this letter to dispel some false rumors, to uh, correct some false thinking and teaching that had been spreading around there in in Thessalonica. And because this is the center of the letter, because this is the main subject matter of these three chapters of 2 Thessalonians, we are actually slowing down our pace a bit so that we can understand fully what Paul is teaching here. Again, he's writing to this local church, a church he established on his second missionary journey, to correct some misunderstanding, to correct some errant thinking, to clear up some things that really were falsely attributed to him. And this false teaching was unsettling them. This false teaching they had heard and believed was from him actually caused them to be fearful and worried. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 2 to see the specific subject matter being considered here in this letter. It's this. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. This is the subject matter. The return of Jesus, the coming, the parousia is the Greek word translated here and throughout the New Testament, coming of Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Friends, this is the promise that Christians have believed that Christians have trusted in for 2,000 years. We celebrate Advent in about two months. That's the coming of Jesus the first time. But we also celebrate and we also hope and we also look toward his second Advent, his second coming. Jesus is coming again. And so we celebrate and we look to that. But also when he comes, Paul tells us that there will be a gathering together to him. What is this? What is this gathering together to Jesus when he does, in fact, return? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, he actually lays out the clear sequence of what that event's going to look like. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul wrote to them in his first letter, For, here's the sequence, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's the sequence. First, the Lord himself, physically, personally, will descend from heaven. Number two, those who are dead, who are Christians, who have been buried in their graves for hundreds of years, and maybe even hundreds of days, will be resurrected from the dead and meet the Lord. Number three, we who may be alive when Christ returns will meet them together in the air. Is this fantastic? <laughs> I mean, we've been around it so often, I think we've, it's lost its luster. This is phenomenal. This is crazy if you think about it. Christ is coming back, and he's going to resurrect the dead, and those who are alive are going to meet him in the air, but this is exactly what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches. And Paul concluded that section there. You'll notice in verse 18, Therefore, 
encourage one another with these words, especially these Christians in Thessalonica who are enduring intense and hostile persecution and affliction. He's saying Christ is coming back. In the midst of your hostility, in the midst of the persecution, Jesus is returning to catch us away. Therefore, encourage one another with this truth. But a recent report had come to Paul that they were not encouraged. In fact, they were very discouraged. Why were they discouraged? Well, let's look back at our focal passage in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, what he taught them in the first letter, the very promise commended to them, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is why they were discouraged. This is why they were alarmed and unsettled because they had heard some false report attributed to Paul that Jesus had in fact returned and they missed it. They missed it. And so Paul says, listen, we need to know there are some clear indicators. There are some clear signs. If anybody tells you Christ has already come back and, and you missed it, I want to share with you, Paul says, two indicators that tell you he has not yet, in fact, returned. These things must happen. Look at verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, unless these two things happen. Number one, the rebellion comes first, and number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Two clear signs, two prophetic events, Paul says, must happen before this Perusia and gathering together of God's elect. The great rebellion, sometimes called the great apostasy, and secondly, the rise of Antichrist. And that's where we left off last week. We just kind of hit the surface of those two signs, the Antichrist and the great rebellion or the apostasy, the, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, referred to most often in theology as the Antichrist. And so what we're going to do, Lord willing, this week and next week is we're going to take a deep dive into these two signs. This week, we're going to consider the Antichrist, the son of lawlessness, and all the character traits Paul lists here in 2 Thessalonians and in, in parallel passages. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at this great apostasy, the rebellion, the second sign he gives here. So let's pick back up our reading, beginning again in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 10. And again, we're looking for uh, identifying characteristics of the Antichrist in the text today. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so 
be saved. And the title of my message this morning is this, Identifying the Antichrist. Reason being, Paul sets forth in this passage some clear identifying markers that we can look at, that we can consider, that describe this individual. And these markers have been considered throughout church history. These identifying characteristics have been looked at throughout the annals of the church, so much so that there have been examples of people that that the church or church leaders or theologians have looked at and said, well, this must be him. This must be the fulfillment of these predictions because these markers are clearly met in these people. For instance, in the the 5th century A.D., in the early 400s, Attila the Hun was one such character that was looked at as being a fulfillment of the Antichrist. I've got a picture of old Attila, at least a uh, facsimile of what he may have looked like. Attila the Hun ravaged and pillaged Eastern Europe as the Roman Empire was in its steep decline of influence and power. And so faithful Christians looked at Attila the Hun and the way he was exercising such ruthless uh, activity and thought, surely this is the Antichrist. You fast forward 1,400 years, another likely candidate was Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte uh, was one who also had this ruthless thirst for world power and world domination through the ruthless employment of force and violence. And there were many likely candidates between Attila the Hun and Napoleon Bonaparte all the way up until our day today. Now, it's easy for us, having the the historic hindsight, hindsight's 2020. it's easy for us to look at previous generations of Christians and say, how could they possibly have thought this person was the Antichrist? But we have that privilege, don't we, of historic hindsight, of being able to look backwards. But each of these were potential candidates. In fact, I mentioned last week, the only place the term Antichrist is used in the New Testament to describe this individual is actually in John's first letter, chapter 2. And notice what he says there about the Antichrist and other Antichrist. He says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So there may be a future Antichrist figure, but throughout history there have been many Antichrists, many despots, many false rulers who have been put forward who could potentially fit the bill. But there will be in the final allotment of all things, a real, legitimate person who will be this final figure known as the Antichrist. In fact, notice what New Testament scholar Leon Morris said as he described him. He said, he, the Antichrist, is the last and supreme embodiment of evil, one who will make his appearance only in the last time. So this morning, from this text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and associated parallel passages, I want us to look at five specific markers, five identifying characteristics about this final embodiment of evil, the Antichrist. The first thing I want us to see is this. Number one, from Paul, we want to look at his description. How does Paul describe this future figure known as the Antichrist? First of all, he says he is the man of lawlessness. Now, just a few things about that phrase. First of all, he begins with the definite article, the. The man of lawlessness. Not a man of lawlessness, but the. There is a man, there is an individual, there is a historic figure who's coming, he may even be alive today, who will be this final 
embodiment of evil among humanity, this final antichrist figure. And then he says he is the man of lawlessness. Now, what is that? What does it mean to be lawless? We know that the law of God is his righteous rule over creation. Who's the creator of the universe? God is the creator of the universe. Therefore, who has established all the laws of the universe? God has established both the natural laws and the moral laws of the universe. He governs rightly all that exists. So the lawless one will be one who rejects God's rule through God's law. This is the Antichrist. He will openly live in defiance of God's righteousness and his rule, and he will celebrate others who do. This is one who will be wicked in his lawless leadership, and it will sweep over the entire world. His influence will be accomplished in ways that have never been seen before in human history. But he's also referred to here as the son of destruction. There's two, I think, possible and probably uh, parallel meanings to this. For one, this exact phrase, son of destruction, somebody else used this phrase, and that's Jesus. He referred to Judas as the son of destruction. And so what is Paul saying here, and what is even Jesus saying about them being son of destruction? They are destined for hell. They're destined for judgment. But also we can understand this phrase, son of destruction, to mean son of means literally one who is the exemplar of something, who's the embodiment of something, who's the greatest expression of something. So here, this Antichrist figure is the greatest expression, the embodiment of destruction. And that's why some of these earlier despots have fit the bill. He's going to be violent. He's going to be ruthless. He will oppose what is right with ungodly violence. This, again, Antichrist will be the ultimate embodiment of all the despots throughout the centuries. And he also says that this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. In other words, he's hidden. Likely this is a person who who is alive at some point, he's known at some point, and then at some point, his true character, his true designs are revealed. There's a coming out, if you will, of actually who he is and what he is intending to do. And what is that? He's intending on lawlessness. He's intending on destruction. This person may even be alive today. We don't know but it will be revealed who he is. So that's the first thing we see about this Antichrist, his description that Paul gives, the man of lawlessness who is revealed, this son of destruction. Here's the second thing I want us to consider. Number two, his designs. He has specific intentions. He has specific designs that he is attempting to accomplish. He has a strategy not only to usurp the rule of God through lawlessness, and through his immoral and wicked life and influence. But in verse 4, Paul presents an even more insidious design that he has, and namely, that he would be worshipped. Now, we don't have anybody like that today, do we? We don't have anybody today that's seeking the worship of people, that wants other people to bow down before their image. <laughs> this is what this person's going to be. Look at verse 4 again. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that... He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul is utilizing language here that was first used by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament and then was repeated by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. 
So what is, the, what is being communicated here by the Apostle Paul in this connection to Daniel and to Jesus? First, consider how Jesus used this language in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is quoting Daniel here, Well, let's read what Daniel actually said. Go back to the source. Here's what Daniel said in Daniel 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So something happens in the temple that is an abomination, that is a profaning, that is a desecration of that sacred space. Now, I mentioned to you the last week, and I think some of you, it just kind of went right over your head, and that's okay, but I want to remind you of the three particular grids of interpretation that Bible scholars typically use to try to understand prophetic passages like in the book of Daniel, the book of Matthew, and even Paul's epistle in the book of Revelation. Here's what they were. I'll just, this is refresher. We talked about the preterist view, and that is that the predictions of the Bible actually occur at the time of the Bible, this word preterist comes from the Latin that means past. And so the preterist view is that things that were predicted in Bible times actually were accomplished and fulfilled in Bible times. The historicist view is that, okay, these predictions are actually patterns that happen throughout history. And so throughout history, we can see rebellions. Throughout history, we can see these antichrist figures. And then I also mentioned to you that the futurist view, the way to interpret Bible prophecy is that these things will be fulfilled in the immediate time surrounding Christ's return. And what I told you last week is that each of these grids of interpretation, if you will, have value and have uh, credence. There are some things that occurred in Bible times that were predicted in Bible times that were fulfilled in Bible times. For instance, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, and it happened in the first century, right? Uh, This can be seen even Here, I believe, in this prediction about some desecration of the temple and the holy place. For instance, there are several candidates for a preterist fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. In 167 BC, there was a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus. Antiochus desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Here's how he did it. He came in as a ruler with his throngs of army, And he came into the temple, into the holy place, and there on the altar, he sacrificed a pig. This would desecrate the Jewish temple, right? He sacrificed a pig there. Perhaps this is the abomination of desolation Daniel predicted. You fast forward to the first century, around the time when Paul was alive and writing actually to this church in Thessalonica, the Roman emperor Caligula in 40 AD, he actually commanded that a statue of himself be erected in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Again, an abomination of desecration, um, desolation. And uh, that could be potentially what even Jesus and Daniel were referring to. Fast forward 30 years, 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem and particularly the raising of the temple. The temple was completely destroyed in 70 AD. So this is obviously a desolation of the temple. This is a desecration of the temple. These are all potential candidates for Daniel and then following Jesus's prediction. So is this what Paul's referring to, this preterist interpretation? Or is there a futurist interpretation that could also be a fulfillment? I believe uh, there is a future 
Antichrist, who will be revealed before the return of Jesus. And Paul says, quote, he takes his seat in the temple of God. What is this? Is he referring to the physical Jewish temple, that Antichrist will come into this physical Jewish temple in Jerusalem and take his seat of position to be worshipped there? Well, there's one problem with that, and that is there is no Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It's been completely destroyed, never been rebuilt. In fact, on the very Temple Mount, we have what's known as the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim mosque right where the temple was. And so in order for this to be fulfilled, literally, the Dome of the Rock would have to be destroyed, a new temple would have to be built, and then the Antichrist would come in. Now, the chief problem, I think, with that interpretation is this. Such an application of Paul's prediction is that nowhere else in any of Paul's writings, and he wrote half the New Testament, Nowhere else does the Apostle Paul use the term temple to refer to the physical structure in Jerusalem. Nowhere. He always uses the term temple to refer to the spiritual reality of Christ's church. Let me show you some examples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's plural, y'all, the church. Verse 17, Paul says this, If anyone destroys God's temple, same word, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, church, are that temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, that's also plural, y'all, have from God? 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So is Paul's reference over and over again to this temple of God physical or spiritual? It's spiritual. In Pauline theology, the temple of God is the church. And so it makes sense to me, at least, this may be different than some of you have heard, maybe rattling little, little cages, but it makes sense to me, practically, and Pauline theology-wise, that when he says this Antichrist figure is going to set up himself in the seat of the temple, he's referring to taking a position of authority in Christ's church. Friends, that is an abomination of desolation. That's what we see him predict here, proclaiming himself to be God. What that means is this future Antichrist will not only pursue his idolatrous agenda within the system of world power, government power, but also through the structures of the organized Christian church. That's scary. Now, Paul concludes this delineation of the designs of the Antichrist by saying in verse 5, do you not remember when I was with you, I still was telling you these things. Now, we don't have the benefit of having been there in the first century when Paul is telling him these things, so we're not privy to that conversation. But by reminding them of this, He's emphasizing the vital importance for these Christians to recognize this pattern of work in history. Now, certainly in the first century, 
the Caesars, the emperors over Rome, they set themselves up, each of them, Caligula, Nero, all of them set themselves up to be worshipped by the Roman populace at large. But friends, just because we don't have this overt uh, expression of worship me in our culture doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we don't have figures raising up statues and big pictures. You go to a foreign country that's a third world country, you'll see massive pictures of their dictators around. But just because in our culture we don't necessarily have that, it doesn't mean there's not this emphasis to worship a false god. And I would say particularly in the 21st century where we live today, we are rife with what we might call the deified state. Let me say that again. We are rife with what we might call the deified state. Friends, in the Bible, the only source of moral truth is God. The only source of what is right and what is wrong is God. The only place we are to look for salvation, for provision, for prosperity, for blessing is God. But in a culture with a deified state, what does the state tell you? You want to know what's right and wrong? Look to government. You want to feel blessing? You got to look to government. You want to be blessed? You want to be prosperous? You even want to do certain things in your own homes? Well, only what the state says you can do can you do. You see it? There's a deified state. You must receive your salvation, your significance, your worship from the state. Now, although we can't be exactly certain how this last evil figure is going to manipulate both political authority and religious authority, we can surmise there will be a corruption in the organized church. There will be a corruption of those who hold offices in Christ's church, and there will be a spread of false teaching. So friends, our work today as Christians is to hold to the truth. Our work today as believers in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is to proclaim the true gospel. That is our best defense against such satanic attack. And speaking of Satan, that leads to the third description I want us to consider. First, we saw his description. He's the lawless one. His designs, he exalts himself to a place of worship. Number three, his devil. His devil. Paul says in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, this is the Antichrist, is by the activity of, of Satan. Make no mistake about it. It is Satan who is empowering this figure. It is the devil who is giving power to this world leader. The word there translated activity, it's a Greek word energia from which we get our word energy. This world leader, this final despot is energized by Satan. He's empowered by the devil to do his will. And so Satan will use this person and put him forward as a false Christ who will bring deliverance to those who want deliverance. He will bring a false savior who promises rescue for all those who feel oppressed. He promises relief to all those who feel victimized by society. This false savior will be empowered and energized by Satan. And Satan will energize himself not only for this rebellion and for this apostasy, that's what we're going to see next week and, and really zero in on, but through intense persecution from the outside towards the church, but also false 
teaching on the inside of the church. See, Satan desires for you. Satan desires for me. Satan desires for Lookout Valley Baptist Church that we would jettison the truth, that we would forsake true teaching, that we would get rid of Bible doctrine and believe the lie. And joined to that goal is also that he would secure for himself this idolatrous worship. Friends, this is the very aim of the evil one of the devil from the beginning. His very aim was to secure for himself the worship intended for God alone. We know that from the book of Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 tells us how Satan fell from his high place in heaven. Satan said of himself, In your heart I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan has been jealous of the glory of God from the beginning, and he's been seeking the worship that is only intended for God alone from the beginning. In fact, if you'll remember, after Jesus was baptized, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, he was led away by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by this devil. And what was the third most pronounced temptation the devil leveled against Jesus? Look what the Bible says in Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, them, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And friends, since Satan failed to acquire the worship of the true Christ, he's going to raise up an antichrist, a false prophet, a false savior who will bring for himself the worship of the world. Friends, this is the devilish activity he's about. Here's the fourth thing I want us to see about this antichrist. Number four, his deception. This is his means. This is how he does it. This is how he wins over so many people. The end of verse 9 says, With all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Satan's chief method throughout the generations, throughout the eons of human history, has been deception. He's a counterfeit. He's the father of lies. He is the liar from the beginning. It is through lies and half-truths that he first tempted and and led astray Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's been functioning that way ever since. In fact, I would remind you what Paul said at the beginning of this corrective instruction in verse 3. He said, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived by these false teachings that are going on. But friends, during the time of Antichrist, this deception, this delusion that Satan will have people under will be at an all-time high. And the Antichrist will be specifically energized and specially empowered with deception. He will lure men and women away. He will lure away even some of our children and grandchildren to false truths and lies that ultimately end in their destruction. And the reality of this rampant deception means this, Christian Look out, Valley Baptist Church. We must be vigilant about the truth. How do you combat a counterfeit? With the real, with the authentic. How do you combat the lies and the deception of the evil one through the Antichrist? Through the truth. So with our children and our grandchildren, 
as families, as parents, as grandparents, as a church, let us be vigilant to proclaim the truth. To proclaim the truth. This is our best weapon in spiritual warfare against the deception that is so prevalent today. And we can see in our day examples of this delusion and this deception in our society. Government entities and media powers are arrayed against the law of God. They are arrayed against the truth of God. Remember, lawlessness is rejecting God's rule. Lawlessness is rejecting God's word. Do we see this today? I think most clearly we see it with the sexual revolution. Our society has jettisoned God's design for human sexuality. There is a strong deception. You see the deception? There's a strong delusion in our nation about God's design for human sexuality. And why would Satan attack this particularly? Because God hates humanity. I mean, excuse me, Satan hates humanity. Because every human being is an image bearer of God. Satan hates God. Just this week, our federal government announced the swearing in of the first ever, quote unquote, female four star general of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. Of course, this, this highly educated medical doctor is not a female, he's a male who's under the delusion, the deception, that he is in fact female. This is satanic. This is the deception and the delusion that is over our society. And if anyone stands up for truth and says, uh, God's law of biology says that's not true, what happens? You're hateful, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you're uncaring. And so we must always remember, friends, those who are deceived and deluded, that's the psychiatric textbook definition of delusional. They are under Satan's control. And so we confront them as such. How's that? We confront them in the power of the Spirit. We remember these people who are so deceived, they're not the enemy. In fact, notice how Paul put it, the spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, very familiar passage. For we do not wrestle. Our fight, our struggle, our war is not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, we wage this war not in the flesh. We wage this war in the power of the Spirit. And how does the Spirit empower us in this battle? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Paul even told his son in the faith, Timothy, in the final letter he wrote, recorded in our New Testament. How do we confront the opposers to the gospel? With rabid anger? No. 
But Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the Lord's servant, anybody here a servant of the Lord? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, how? With gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, you know you wait the way you confront the deception that is in our world? It's not through your angry Facebook posts. It's not through rabid interjection and conversation and arguments. The way God chooses to deliver people who are held captive by Satan is through gentle correction by spirit-filled Christians. Will you be that kind of follower of Christ? Loving Gentle, kind, we must always remember these people are made in the image of God, created to give worship to God, and they are held captive by Satan to do his will. And with all this discussion about the Antichrist and how he's going to be energized, how he's going to produce so much evil and violence in the world, it could cause us as Christians to panic. Oh, no! It could cause us to be fearful. It could cause us to have great anxiety about the future. And there are no two ways about it. The future is bleak. But I don't want you to miss this final aspect of how Paul describes the Antichrist. Number five, his destiny. His destiny. Verse 80 says, And then, <laughs> and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What's the destiny of this great military, political, and religious figure? He's going to be killed by Jesus. Jesus is going to take him out. Listen, the Bible does not paint this future struggle, this future battle, between two equal and opposite forces, God against Satan, Jesus Christ against the Antichrist. No, there is no equal yet opposite battle. Friends, there's no contest. It ain't even going to be close. The reason the church will win in the end is not because we rise up in some revolution. It has nothing to do with us. The reason the church will win in the end is because the reason we win today, Christ wins for us. The only merit we have in, before God is nothing that we do. It's only the merit of Christ. And do you notice how Paul described how Jesus would, in fact, do this? He's going to wipe him out. He's going to kill him with the breath of his mouth. The breath of the mouth. This is not a battle of the centuries. This is going to be the biggest blowout in history. This week, I looked up the biggest blowouts in college football history. You might be surprised to learn, as I did, that it wasn't when Florida beat Tennessee really badly. <laughs> the biggest blowout in college football history is actually when Georgia Tech beat Cumberland College on October 16, 1916. Here's the final scoreboard, a picture of it. Georgia Tech won 222-0. to zero. You see, they kind of let up the gas a little in the fourth quarter. They only scored 42 points in the fourth quarter in there. 
This does not compare to the blowout that the Antichrist and Satan are going to receive. And friends, it's a literal blowout. Jesus is going to blow, and they're out. That's exactly how Paul, Paul describes it. By the breath of his mouth. Jesus doesn't even have to raise a finger. He's just going to blow, and he's going to destroy all the enemies of God forever. This is good news. And friends, again, we do not win because of our personal strength. We do not win because of our own merit. We win because we have a powerful Savior. As we draw towards a conclusion on this teaching regarding the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, this Antichrist, let's consider some points of application. And there's really a question I want us to answer. How do we now live? How do we now, as Christians, live in light of this truth of a coming evil one empowered and energized by Satan? Three things I want you to see. Number one, we anticipate future opposition. When we experience opposition for our faith, when we experience hostility openly against Christ's church, we should not respond as if something strange is happening to us. This is what's going to happen in the end. We can, in fact, anticipate in growing degrees as we move towards the conclusion of all redemptive history, there will be strong opposition against Christ's church. We may experience brief seasons of growth. We may experience in the church before now and the end seasons of expansion. We know the church is expanding in other parts of the world. We may have seasons of revival, but there's coming a time when the most intense, difficult, and satanic opposition of the gospel is going to be experienced. And so we should not be surprised when laws are passed that seem unfair. It should not catch us off guard when courts make rulings that are unjust. It should not catch us by surprise when things are said in the media about Christ's church that are not true. This is the future opposition we can anticipate. There will be a malice. There will be a hatred towards true Christians. Further, we should not be surprised at false teaching arising within the church. And again, that's why we must be vigilant to protect and guard pure doctrine. There are some songs that are sung in the evangelical church in our country that we won't sing here because they represent false doctrine. Some of you say, well, I'm inspired by those songs. Sorry. (laughs) They come from organizations that are heretical, and we won't sing them. Why? We're guarding the purity of the truth. There will be a coming concentrated attack empowered by Satan against the true church and the true gospel. So anticipate future opposition. Here's the second thing. Affirm unyielding devotion. Since Satan's aim, at least one of them, is apostasy in the church, since one of his aims is idolatrous worship of himself and of his beast, we must affirm and then reaffirm an unyielding devotion to Christ. We must never swerve from the exclusivity of the gospel message, that it and it alone is the truth. Jesus and Jesus alone is the means of salvation. This will be a challenge. Will we bend the knee? Will we bow and worship the image? Will we give allegiance to the false systems of this world because we hope to gain some kind of 
cultural acceptance? This is the question. We must be willing to die for the faith. We must affirm unyielding devotion to Christ. But here's the third thing. We must acknowledge gospel confidence. We can have gospel confidence. We can face every opposition, whether outward or inward, because we have a firm confidence in the gospel of Jesus to save us. And as I mentioned last week, the gospel of Jesus does not just end at his death, burial, and resurrection, and even ascension. The gospel of Jesus includes his return. The consummation of the gospel is Christ's return. And so, having this gospel confidence, even in difficult seasons of history, we can have peace. We can have joy. We can be settled in hope because of Christ's gospel. You know, much ink has been spilled through the centuries writing on this person we've looked at this morning, the Antichrist, and some things I said today may be different than things you've heard in the past, and you know what? That's okay. At the end, there's one detail that matters in the end of the day. It's not about the identity of this Antichrist, where he's going to rise, if there's a physical, literal temple or not, if it's spiritual to the church. Here's what really matters in the end of the day. Look at this next slide. Jesus wins. That's what matters. At the end of the day, Jesus wins. Jesus rules. He will come, and he will destroy forever and cast into the lake of fire the devil, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. He will rule, and he will reign. He will resurrect the saints of old to meet him in the air, and he will send forth his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. Jesus wins, and so we will ever be with the Lord. And because of that, friends, let me give this final and ultimate application. The ultimate application is what matters most is not where you stand on the different interpretations of end times teaching. What matters today is where you stand with Jesus. What matters today is have you responded to his warm invitation? Have you responded to God's sovereign summons to believe the gospel, to reject self-worship, to reject the kingdoms of this world. You see, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness. Satan is the king of that world. And you may say, well, I'm not in that kingdom. If you're pursuing the things and deceptions that Satan throws your way, wealth, popularity, fame, success, yes, you're in that kingdom. The other kingdom is the kingdom of light. Jesus is that king. And God the Father sent Jesus the king to die for you, to take upon his own body the punishment for your sin so that all who trust in him, all who believe in his name, might have life everlasting, might have hope and rejoice with the victorious Jesus who wins. Friends, we can only be safe, we can only be ultimately secure in times of uncertainty, by trusting in Jesus alone. That leads to my last thought. In spite of the dark clouds on the horizon, we can live with joyful security in the promises of God to his people.